Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. It really involves using the sovereignty of the government to control your currency, to provide government credit for infrastructure and technological advance, to protect your labor force and your industry through tariffs or through subsidies or through other methods like that, and to basically use your economy for what Hamilton called public and your banking system for public utility, for the general welfare of the population. And the results of that have been the periods of greatest prosperity in our history. That's a description of Alexander Hamilton's view of the American system of finance as distinguished from the British system, as told by our guest today, author and professor Nancy Spanis, whose book Hamilton versus Wall Street, The Core Principles of the American System, discusses the stark contrast of the America's banking origins centered on the principles of a democratic government and what has later become an aberration of that system focused on profiteering off the public wheel. Hello, and welcome once again to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. Today we're going to take an historic look into how our monetary system was originally intended to operate, as envisioned by Alexander Hamilton, and contrast that with what has happened to that vision through the priorities and power of profiteering bankers and complicit government agencies, and how Wall Street interests consistently undermine Main Street needs. In more recent days, the Federal Reserve has been on the front line of executing where the financial assets of our country get invested, and it defers to its primary owners, the megabanks on Wall Street, through which the Federal Reserve distributes the nation's capital. The obvious failures of this arrangement extend far across our nation in all types of economic, social, and political categories, including the increasing rates of poverty and financial inequities, environmental destruction through energy cartels and corporate lobbying, and through our private system of credit issuance that extracts private wealth through a system of barely bridled usury. This is not what Hamilton had in mind for the United States, yet it is the predictable product of a system run and controlled by private bankers from around the world. Our central bank, the Fed, services the banking industry using our money, as disposed through our treasury, without requiring productive objectives that could build our country. And instead, it supports the speculative markets that Wall Street has always served for financial gains. If one doubts that claim, 
it would be worth remembering that the Fed distributed $29 trillion to banks all over the world following the collapse of the banking realm back in 2008, which the banks, of course, caused. The Fed hid that gargantuan lending spree from the public for years and had no congressional approval to act in that way to begin with. Things have only continued and gotten worse since then, and the Fed is continuing to hide trillions of dollars that it has issued to its bank owners as it continues to reinforce the repo market, as Ellen has illuminated in a variety of comments and articles that she's written numerous times. So today, we'll take a look back at the American financial system as it is told through our guest Nancy Spanis, author of the book Hamilton vs. Wall Street the core principles of the American system. Now, let's talk with Ellen. Well, Ellen, we find ourselves in a, in a moment of continued financial and monetary stress. Uh, Wall Street gets more powerful. Uh, our Federal Reserve seems to be doing more of its bidding. Uh, really inconsistent with Hamilton's idea of how the American system of money and finance should be conducted for productivity as opposed to speculation. Uh, and now PBS has come out, the Frontline program has come out with a, a very powerful program called The Power of the Fed. What kind of commentary or kind of a blend do you think this is contributing to the uh, general welfare and, and knowledge uh, at this point? Well, that was a very good uh, documentary, and uh, they had experts on both sides. And Neil Kashkari, uh, one of the Fed uh, experts, uh, thought that the Fed was doing its best and it was stimulating the economy. But the general thrust of the documentary, which I would agree with, is that the Fed is basically today's central bank is a tool of Wall Street. And in our <laughs> interview that we're doing today with Nancy Spanis, uh, the, uh, Hamilton was pitted against Wall Street, although we didn't really have a Wall Street as we know it today, but it was the, the speculative interest, the, the, the uh, private bankers that wanted to use m money for speculation. I mean, that's what we have today, basically, is that the... Uh, <clears throat> the in this last crisis, for example, the, the Fed dropped trillions of dollars, but they have to, um, in quantitative easing, but they have to give it directly to the, uh, what are called the primary dealers, which are all big banks or big bond dealers. So it, it is not allowed to lend directly into the economy. And that's what Hamilton had in mind was that the purpose of the central bank would be lending for pr productivity only. In fact, he was opposed to speculation that it would go directly to companies that would then be engaged in productive activities. And um, our Fed, the money goes directly into big banks. And when they drop the interest rates to zero or near zero for the banks, for the, you know, their primary dealers, then the banks make very low interest loans but they aren't making it. There's no mandate for them to make these loans to small businesses and they're not doing it because the small businesses are, they consider them risky so that they make the loans to the big companies and the big companies are not using the money 
as hoped. I mean, the idea would be, or Hamilton's idea, or FDI, or our FDR's idea, or you know, that the idea would be that the money would be used to make more factories, to hire more workers, to buy more equipment. But instead, what the businesses that have gotten this cheap money have used it for is uh, largely to buy back their own stock. Apparently, six trillion dollars worth of stock buybacks have been done since in the last decade since the Fed started this program. So what that does is it props up asset values like stock values particularly um, and the companies and it helps the bonuses of the executives but the companies instead of hiring more workers they're actually hiring fewer workers because the other thing they invest in is technology that allows them to lay off workers, you know, um, AI that can do the jobs of humans. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not the model that Hamilton had in mind, but uh, there was there was a National Infrastructure Bank bill last year that we heavily supported at the Public Banking Institute, and they've refiled the bill this year. And that, that sort of bank would be a Hamiltonian bank and it would be geared specifically for infrastructure. Um, another issue is making loans to state and local governments, which um, the, the Fed, it's allowed to do it, but it doesn't do it. It's certainly not doing it at 0.25%. The only way we could get that sort of rate would be if we had our own publicly owned banks, which is what, <laughs> what we've been pushing for for a long time. Um, and what the Fed could do, but it would probably take some congressional action to make them do it, is to, there is a provision in the Federal Reserve Act that they can lend to state and local governments, but only for three months. So that could be increased that, or they could roll over the loans to long enough to, to build infrastructure. You know, an infrastructure loan has to be more than three months. Um, or they could, well, anyway, they could make provision. <laughs> anyway, they need to modify the Federal Reserve Act a bit. Uh, the original, I guess, um, FDR, at, uh, Franklin Roosevelt attempted to get the Federal Reserve to lend directly into the economy. And that, that was a possibility in their original mandate, as um, uh, Professor Bob Hockett has said on this show earlier. Yeah. But uh, so all that could be restored and it would actually be in line with the original Federal Reserve Act, in line with the Constitution, definitely in line with what Hamilton had in mind. But it might take some congressional action. Well, I think we want to uh, remember that there is a bill on the floor called the Public Banking Act, which uh, congressional people, Taleb and uh, AOC, uh, have proposed, which would revise and, and uh, renew or revise really the Federal Reserve Act and make the Fed really a public utility, something that really serves the public interest as not as opposed to just the, you know, the, um, the, the banking oligarchy. Um, so there is some motion at the congressional level, but it seems to me that it should be a rallying cry or at least an opportunity for us to band together to support that kind of legislation. Right. Uh, the, another thing the Federal Reserve has done or that Congress has done, of course, the, the quantitative easing involves buying either federal securities, which is good for the 
um, for Congress, you know, money for them to spend. And they've bought, they've increased their budget. <laughs> they've gone over budget or, you know, gone into debt, heavily into debt in the last few years. Um, but they have, what, but they also, Congress needs to use that money for more targeted things. I mean, to, to give, just to give people $1,000 here and $1,000 there has not actually done what it was supposed to do. I mean, arguably, you'd have more consumption, which would motivate businesses to do more productivity. But because they're not reliable, you know, it's just one here and one there, you know, one relief payment here and one there. Mm -hmm. People have used it to pay down their debt or um, you know, we've seen small investors going in the stock market because they see the stock market going up and that they think that's the only way to make money. And so so they put their, you know, a few hundred dollars into the stock market and they're bound to lose it ultimately because the big players always have the advantage. And right now, you know, a lot of people are predicting a stock market crash and that will wipe out all those small investors or could. And housing's another issue, anyway. Yeah, I mean, all of those, all of those categories of ne capital needs on the street level, the main street level, <clears throat> are things that the Federal Reserve have, has been really inept and really unable, as you indicated, to really serve. Uh, lending to, into the banking uh, regime uh, does not get the money into the streets. So, Kashkari's disappointment that gen that uh, that. Uh, um, uh, quantitative easing didn't work shouldn't have been a surprise to him because if you don't impact it at the level of labor at the level of where people live uh, then you're you're stuck with having to have the middle people who are the what I think our, our guest Nancy Spanish would call the local oligarchs uh, controlling the you know the vitality of the economy and I think that's really uh, uh, one of the really interesting things about her commentary is, which we're going to hear in just a, about a 30 seconds, um, uh, is that the, uh, uh, the, the, the tendency for big money to control the future of, of the country, whether it be England or the United States, has always rested with the people who control the capital. And that Hamilton wanted to make this uh, richness and wealth available to the people through investing uh, in the productive economy that America could and should be, including, uh, you know, building around our values, our core values, and to inspire individual action and initiative. That's what he wanted to do. So uh, I, I, let's let's go listen to your conversation with Nancy, and, and, and thanks, Ellen. Okay, thank you. Today is Nancy Spanis, who is has written a very interesting book called Hamilton versus Wall Street: The Core Principles of the American System. Nancy has a graduate degree from Columbia University and is currently a lecturer and adjunct professor at Frederick County Community College in Virginia. So, Nancy, it's great to be talking to you. <laughs> American yes. System, Alexander Hamilton, or subjects dear to my heart in Wall Street in, a, in, the, in the opposite way, but dear to my heart, but our listeners may not know what that's all about. So first of all, can you just, you know, say briefly what the American system is? And it was opposed to the British system by Henry Carey under Abraham Lincoln's advisors. So what's the, what is it and what's the difference? Well, um, 
You know, I've looked through the book after you mentioned that, and I realized I never actually give a list until the very end, because the reason was that I saw the American system as being defined in Hamilton's report on manufacturers, not in any particular list of things he did. Um, it's a, you know, as a set of principles, right? Um, but when you have to congeal it, like I've had to do in classes, right? Um, it really involves using the sovereignty of the government to control your currency, which didn't happen under the British system, to provide government credit for infrastructure and technological advance, to protect your labor force and your industry through tariffs or through subsidies or through other methods like that, and to basically use your economy for what Hamilton called public and your banking system for public utility, for the general welfare of the population. And the results of that have been the periods of greatest prosperity in our history. Uh, thank you. And you, you've talked about how Hamilton has been much maligned. And one thing is that he's been called the, um, the father of Wall Street. And you're saying that he was versus Wall Street. So can you go into that a little bit? Why, in what way was he some of one and some of the other? You know, he did set up our credit system, right? And the, our credit system uh, and supporting government bonds was used to establish financial markets in uh, Wall Street. But he absolutely opposed speculation. Uh, and he was... Uh, wanted regulation. In fact, it's very interesting that um, in setting up the National First Bank of the United States, which of course was a private bank, it was capitalized by federal credit, three quarters of the capitalization had to be federal bonds, but it was supervised by the federal government, but there were private investors and it could lend commercially and so forth. It wasn't like people might imagine as a monolithic central bank. So he has in it the regulation as he's going through very detailed regulations. He says, Secretary of the Treasury can evaluate, uh, you know, check the books, but no more than once a week. Well, once a week, I mean, get, he's talking about really watching what's going on here <laughs> and making sure that there's no funny business. Uh, and when Aaron Burr had funny business in setting up the Bank of the Manhattan, which turned into Chase Manhattan, which turned into J.P. Morgan Chase, they were supposedly set up to fund a water system for New York City. And all they did was not produce anything in terms of water, but go for the profits and speculative interests of their investors. And he said, that's a perfect monster of a bank uh, and opposed that whole way of operation. So in short, um, that's, he was a nation builder. His whole idea of finance was to build the country and to unite the country. The economic policies were intended to increase the interconnections, not only with infrastructure, but also with commerce 
Um, and he realized that th to do this, you needed to upgrade your labor. I don't know if I should keep talking, but I could tell you how I got hooked on Hamilton. Yeah, labor. sure, go ahead. I got hooked because I read the report on manufacturers and as he, which begins of course, with a big attack on Adam Smith for saying that the colonies, American colonies should never become a manufacturing nation in the near term, uh, but remain dependent on the country. But then he goes through, you know, reasons, he counters the anti-manufacturing argument and then makes arguments for it. And the thing that really hit me is that one reason for manufacturing is to increase the powers and uh, inventiveness of the human mind. And I thought to myself, wow, right? Here's an, somebody who's into finance who wants to increase the mental creative powers of the population through his economic policy. I mean, did we learn that in Economics 101? I mean, I didn't. <laughs> right, so, so basically, I mean, the way I see it, the American system is that, you know, that you're serving the productivity of the country with sovereign money, sovereign credit, a national bank that belongs to the people and serves the people versus the British company or system is all about private profit and speculation, exploitation, money making money without necessarily producing anything. I know um, uh, you, you pointed out that Hamilton was criticized for uh, endorsing the, the British uh, central bank, the Bank of England, <laughs> um, but, but you say it was not, you know, he was only endorsing a certain, a certain aspects of the model, not the whole model. So in what way was the American system or the first U.S. bank or the first and second U.S. banks different from the Bank of England? Well, the Bank of England was basically a piggy bank for the monarchy to carry and to profit the people who were lending to them, uh, to the government to do that, um, where as opposed to and any increase in the productive activity and improvement of the industry and agriculture in the country were, was incidental to that purpose. And I think Hamilton, in a way, addresses that when he makes an argument for not having a wholly government-controlled bank because uh, he doesn't want it to be used in that kind of way. He wants it to be used as a nursery for industry and agriculture and progress, uh, commerce, uh, which is, I think, the way he did it. I'm not alone in this. Um, I really got this very lot of insight out of the work of Forrest MacDonald. I don't know if you've ever read his biography of Alexander Hamilton, but it's a no, if you don't want to go through 800 pages of chair now, um, actually, the uh, McDonald, who was a conservative, supposedly, but he's very insightful in what he follows. But he's not a politico up front. He's a he's a scholar. He is a lot of insight into Hamilton's economic thinking being and how he pointed out how you can have technical similarities 
between your banking system in the United States and the Bank of England. Uh, but if the whole purpose of the bank is totally different, uh, you have a different system. And the whole purpose here was totally different. Uh, and that's the way it functioned briefly um, until priorities changed under the uh, Jefferson administration and, and onward. They didn't want any infrastructure. They cut, you know, any kind of planning for infrastructure. Uh, tariffs were cut, you know, for support for manufacturing. You point out that three of our, you know, famous presidents, Lincoln, FDR, and uh, Kennedy, were all followed the American system. And FDR had hoped to make the Federal Reserve service service the um, the small business, you know, make loans for productivity into the real economy, but he couldn't get that passed. So instead he set up the Reconstruction right. Finance Corporation. But that was the American system. The goal of the American system was to uh, stimulate productivity, support productivity. Uh, likewise with Lincoln, of course, he, get, he got into the presidency and was hit immediately with the war. So he didn't exactly have time to set up another US bank but he did do sovereign credit in the most direct way you can do it, namely printed the money right. and spent it. And it's, you know, increased the money supply by 300% or something and still did not create inflation. I've written about this myself. And uh, besides winning the war, avoiding a 30% or so interest loans for to the British bankers. And um, besides that managed to, stimulate all this uh, productivity across the country, including the Transcontinental Railroad. And uh, one thing that's, you know, dear to my heart was that the Homestead Act set up under Lincoln. My great, 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 whatever, some grandfather uh, fought in the Civil War and his name was William Henry Harrison Miles. So, you know, named after the president that that Lincoln ran, you know, when he first got, you pointed that out in the recent article that when Lincoln first, uh, you know, gave his first, I guess, famous speech, it was when William Henry Harrison was running for president. And so my great, great, great grandfather homesteaded 160 acres in Pennsylvania. And that was the farm that was, you know, my childhood farm <laughs> was that oh, farm wow. under Lincoln. But of course, my grandmother, unfortunately, sold it for $13,000 in the 1960s or late 50s or something like that. You know, it's like basically just like all the farmers have gotten, you know, a raw deal in the last. I mean, there there's an obvious attempt to take the land back from the farmers and consolidate into these big agribusinesses. But anyway, so that rang a bell with me. <laughs> touched my heart. So, so my great, great, great grandfather fought at Gettysburg, got uh, tuberculosis and died of tuberculosis, but meanwhile established this farm. So that was cool. Anyway, so Lincoln did amazing things, including actually starting the railroad under, his, as you point out, under his uh, presidency. I mean, it wasn't just, it was finished afterwards, but he actually, anyway, do you want to discuss any of that? The Lincoln modification and well, uh, the first thing I want, wanted to discuss was was actually the the banking question, right? Because you know when I did this post on American system now, you know I didn't actually realize 
I was rereading a book about uh, uh, about Lincoln's economic policies and how he how he was so motivated for by by Henry Clay and the and the American system, which of course Lincoln described the American system as uh, in his stump speeches and as as Clay did as national banking, internal improvements, and the tariff. The tariff being one means by which you support your industry and your living standard of your of your workers, um, but in in Lincoln really pushing that, he pushed it in 1832. That's exactly the time that uh, Andrew Jackson was riling up the population against the bank, um, saying that this was a totally elitist, you know, impossibly oppressive group um, and ripping people off. But there was a massive movement. I mean, you can find this on the blog too. I did, I did a, a, a post on it. There was a movement throughout the country of memorials in support of the bank against the veto saying, you've dried up credit. You know, we can't do any, we can't, you know, expand our farm. We can't get our new equipment from someplace across the country because no longer do we have the ability to use the script of the second bank of the United States. And, you know, and Jackson went further even and demanded payment in coin, right? So you couldn't use credit at all. Um, and that was a absolutely a, a theme of all the American system um, organizers. Um, and going back pre-American system and to Benjamin Franklin on paper currency and the need for credit. You know, you either get credit or you don't. There's another very sharp contrast between the British and American system uh, on the question of usury. I mean, you mentioned the 30% interest rates for Lincoln. Well, at the time that almost exactly the same time that Hamilton was writing about how a new national bank would reduce usury by making credit more available for what was necessary, Jeremy Bentham, in, who I think was in Russia at the time, was writing a paper called In Defense of Usury. Um, saying that this is what traffic will bear is what your bankers should be able to do. Um, so this is uh, a major, you can see a sort of moral difference between the British system and the American system in that regard. Yeah, that which brings, makes me think of something else. I just watched it. I was discussed this with you earlier, but I watched a video recently about, um, it was an Australian woman, but she, she was pointing out that uh, uh, communism was supposed to evolve naturally into capitalism. You know, that was the, Marx said that, that it would just, capitalism would fall, a, fall apart. But it obviously didn't. Capitalism uh, prevailed, but it's, you know, a very, form of capitalism that we don't necessarily approve of. Um, so therefore, now we have the World Economic 
forum Great Reset, which is a form of communism. I mean, You Will Own Nothing and Be Happy was the name of an article in a video that was on their website. Apparently, it's been taken down now, but that's the idea. Really? That we'll it was own. on their website? Yeah, that was the name of it. You Will Own Nothing. And, you know, we'd all be renters. So it's a, basically a feudal system, return to feudalism. So, so in this video, they were saying, you know, they, in order to, to create this communist system, which did, it hasn't evolved naturally, they've, they're having to do these various ploys and the original Green New Deal didn't work and the, the pandemic didn't work totally or whatever. So now the next thing is maybe a cyber attack, which would certainly reduce us all. But what I, what I just want to get into is the fact that young people, particularly today, are quite drawn to socialism and communism. Um, but the American system is neither. I mean, it, it wasn't capitalist. It was a way of combining, uh, you know, a top-down control, but a top-down control, or, you know, of the money system that is in the people's interest. It's controlled by the people. It's public in the real sense, you know, with public mandates and public. Does that <laughs> ring any any topics in your head? Right. Like to right. Well, of course, the the whole idea of communism was not around when Hamilton was around, um, but his advocacy and the advocacy of the American system for the for the enhancement of labor, you know, does set off alarm bells for lots of people who are anti-communist. I mean, I remember giving a speech once about Hamilton talking about increasing the productivity of labor and something, and that's Marxist, you know. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> this is the, the value of labor was, uh, and your quality of labor as critical to creating wealth has been an idea of forward-thinking economists for a long, long time. I just did a, a study of, of cameralism, which is one of the European uh, back uh, predecessors of the Hamilton, of the American system, uh, as I argue. There's a, a video on it on my on YouTube channel. Um, and these guys were talking about it then. Right. They were talking about how wealth was not what minerals you had in the ground or your ability to trade to mutual advantage or your richness of your land. It had to do with the quality of your population. Um, and therefore, that's everything that you had to invest in. And as far as I know, it, I haven't looked at the great reset stuff in any depth at all, except news. Right. Um, that's all based upon uh, limited resources available to mankind, as opposed to the creativity of mankind to create new resources, which we have throughout our entire history. And that's, uh, I think, the American system and certainly Lincoln, you know, if you look at Lincoln as, as I do, as basically what Hamilton would have wanted to be, <laughs> uh, but under the circumstances never was, you know, that uh, he had that concept of the inventiveness of the human mind being really at the center 
of what would, what you needed to foster in government. And that, of course, is not very communistic idea these days. Um, and it's more control and and because we have limited resources and because people are so evil that they'll kill each other, I guess, if you don't have those formal controls. So it, what you're talking about with the American system is neither free market capitalism nor socialism. You're talking about a different system. Uh, the, the French would call it dirigiste, right, or something. Although Hamilton's system was not as controlled as the French system was, that was monarchical in a, in a much more bureaucratic way than Hamilton would go for, I think. Well, communism wasn't around during Hamilton's time, but capitalism was, raw capitalism, that exploitative, speculative, I mean, that was the thing that the American system was opposed to, right? Or yes, that right. Was, and that was the sense in which Hamilton was versus Wall Street. Do you want to explain how he was like actually versus Wall Street? Well, as I said, uh, he, I mean, he took measures to, to stop speculation. Uh, there was a run on the banking there was a whole speculative market in the bonds of the United States and also that touched his manufacturing startup, the Society for Useful Manufacturers. And he had to crack down on that, right? Uh, despite the fact that one of the guys was a friend of his, you know, he uh, let the guy go to jail, you know? Um, and that was, uh, so he used the power that he had at the treasury to nip speculation in the blood, in the bud. Um, and in terms of personal corruption, which is what the, his opponents were always trying to prove, they were always saying, well, you're running your financial system to help your cronies, you know, who have money on Wall Street. Uh, and, you know, they must have done at least six thorough investigations of absolutely everything. Um, and, you know, they never found a thing because the way he ran the system was for the benefit of being able to invest in the physical economy and maintain the value of the debt of the debt of the United States so that we wouldn't be ripped off, you know, in terms of interest rates and things of that sort. So, what he did not get a chance to do, although it's there in the report on manufacturers, is to, which is against Wall Street, is to, to uh, invest in the long-term infrastructure of the country. I mean, he, he wrote in favor of that. Uh, he did a certain amount of infrastructure in the lighthouses and in the post roads. Um, and actually there were some canals that were begun um, in the 1790s when he was still treasury secretary, uh, which were aided by the fact that the National Bank existed. But you know, the Wall Street outlook, certainly as it has evolved, is short-term profit. Right? And uh, doesn't matter whether it builds anything. Um, and he had the opposite view. 
Yeah, I, and I, you wrote also that Roosevelt, in Roosevelt's day, the banks were funding their cronies. It was the same, you know, the same thing Hamilton was accused of, but apparently wasn't doing. But anyway, the banks were funding their cronies and the money wasn't getting to the small businesses. So you had the cronies getting rich and the little guys getting crushed and going bankrupt. So we have the same problem in this the last year, obviously, where uh, the Federal Reserve just poured out credit, but most of it went to the big, you know, big industries and uh, the many little, little guys went bust again. So how can we fix that? <laughs> I mean, I, we want a public, or the Public Banking Institute, what we would argue for, and the National Infrastructure Bank um, project, which I totally, we to, you know, we've written and talked about a lot and we support that we should have a national infrastructure bank. We should have a, a national bank like the Hamiltonian bank that actually made loans directly into the economy. Right, uh, right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm supportive of that idea. When I did the book, which was in 2019, you know, that's now not ancient history, right, but right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a while. Um, there wasn't a national infrastructure bill, you know, introduced. And, uh, but I sort of, I, I yeah. sort of put out a, you know, a thought object or, you know, a, a model of what might follow the Hamilton mm -hmm. idea of using federal credit to fund a infrastructure bank um, that could only be used, <laughs> could not be used for speculation, could only be used to build the physical economy. So, you, people can find that at the end of the book. But what I do, I try to focus on the historical background because as somebody who just reviewed my book said uh, in his title, which made me very happy, he said, it worked. What Hamilton, the Hamilton's ideas worked. So why don't we actually apply them? Those are the periods, those are the periods where you know, we had increasing standards of living where we had increased productivity as opposed to under 1%, you know, where we had, you know, investment in R&D. I mean, Hamilton proposed an arts and sciences institute in the federal government, you know, to support invest, you know, inventions and things of that sort. It's, I mean, the kinds of proposals that he had were way ahead of his time and what was able to be done at that particular time. Because people should realize that we were, we were in a different kind of war with the British after we won the revolution. But the British were committed 150% against us industrializing and becoming a manufacturing nation all the way up to the Civil War. Um, which is one reason that they actually supported the South and the, you know, supported the slave system in the Civil War. You know, by simply going for us becoming a manufacturing nation that would not be dependent upon the mother country for necessities, Hamilton was being anti-British, whereas the what we would consider today the wall the wall street over time the majority of it was all in with the british <laughs> you know 
to simply make money on loans regardless of what was built. Yeah, so we are, we are, and we have that problem today as well, where we really need to be independent. We've, we've seen what happens when you're totally dependent on other countries and the supply, supply and you lines. have no medicine. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and well, where I live, there's not even a place to do a garden. I mean, if they cut off the water and the food, we're all dead here where I live. So yeah, we definitely need more self-sufficiency. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's not a reactionary idea to be in a position to make sure that you can feed and support the health and, and house your people. I mean, what we've seen. Yeah, but in, most people can't do that. Like homesteading is not a possibility anymore. The land is not there. The no, land I mean, is as a country, as a country. Yeah, yeah, we would be able right. to do that. No, no, I don't mean everybody their own state. You know, <laughs> um, I think sometimes there's a bit too much of that around here in this country, where people say, "Well, you know, I'm going to be independent, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to have everything at my fingertips, and the hell with everybody else." I mean, that's that's not really going to create a great future. <laughs> so um, we have to. You have to think big, but look at the models that work. I think all these things that are being used against us can also be used. Well, I'm thinking of the cyber things. You know, there's potential or digital currencies, et cetera. There's potential for it to serve the people or even like the central bank, which could be, you could have a Bank of England type central bank, which is corrupt and exploitative, or you could have a uh, U.S., first U.S. bank type bank that is actually geared toward productivity. Yeah, right. It, it depends on how you are, the principles that are governing what you're doing. Um, and people aren't really used to thinking in terms of principles these days, I think, very much. They're, they, they think of the mechanics, you know, um, and sometimes they think of the results. But but the principles that go into it and, and the value of, of what's being supported uh, and what's required. And this national unity question is a big one, right? And building infrastructure that, that's where, where FDR was phenomenal, right? In ensuring that there was investment in every part of the country uh, in order so that no one could say, that they were running the Reconstruction Finance Corporation or any of the major programs for the benefit of one part of the nation against another part of the nation. And Hamilton yeah. fought against the accusation that he was just trying to help the North. He wasn't, but you know he had difficulty convincing people of that because- hey, You've yeah. done a really nice job of laying out how he, he was supporting the whole country and basically how he was doing good. Um, and you've also mentioned uh, how the American system influenced other countries, Russia and Japan and uh, Germany and the early, Chi the early Chinese Republic. Do you wanna just mention that? Well, I mean, the thing I find most fascinating was um, and shocking to most people is that in as soon as the 
report on manufacturers came out, they got it to Europe. Now, partly because they were, we were recruiting skilled workers to come to the United, to the United States. But when the Russian consul in London heard about it, he asked for a copy and, and got it to Russia. And by 1807, there was a Russian translation of the report on manufacturers circulating. Now it took them a long time to actually do something about that. Uh, you know, it wasn't until the end of that century that some infrastructure was began to be built to, to try to unite the country and the middle of the country when they got rid of serfdom and so forth and so on. Um, Germany was a very close connection because there were people like Friedrich List uh, who came and spent time in the United States studying with Matthew Carey, who was a very close Hamiltonian in economically speaking and with others of the American system. And he went back and devised a whole rail system for Germany and a tariff system, a customs union against British, the British dominating their economy. Um, and similarly with Japan, uh, one thing that unites all these is when you think of the fact that what Hamilton was thinking about, one of the things he was thinking about politically, political economy, is that he was up against local oligarchs in the, you know, in the states who didn't want to see a national bank because it would interfere with their local control, their local oligarchy. Slavery, of course, being one of the major aspects of that. And we have that today too. <laughs> when people pick up, when these other countries picked up Hamilton's economic ideas, they were using them in part facing that same problem. They had Germany didn't exist as Germany, right? It was all these local potentates. Japan didn't exist as Japan. It was all the local potentates. Um, and, uh, and Russia was, you know, a, you know, a total mess in terms of these huge surf uh, holdings and so forth and so on, a lot of backward people. So they were, everybody faced the same, in a sense, the same question. And they also faced the British empire because the British empire was utilizing the fact of all this disunity and lack of development in order to continue their own looting of the world. So similar, yes, these things don't go away. Unfortunately, they don't go away. <laughs> And you, you pointed out that these other countries were watching the U.S. I mean, it was really revolutionary what was going on in the U.S. And they were waiting to see how that was going to turn out. Right. Um, right now, there is this whole educational push, you know, to sort of downplay American history, like that we're not the good guys that we purport to be. But there really is something noble and uplifting about the American Revolution and, you know, all the things we've been through and you do characterize that. Do you want to say a word on, <laughs> on that? 
Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because I'm working on another book. And this one is trying to take on the, the slavery question, uh, why American slavery persisted. I mean, it, it goes into the, just the tremendous amount. I mean, our country was the center of anti-slavery agitation in the 18th century. You know, it, that didn't work, right? For reasons that I go into, but you know, the first abolition society was in the United States. It was in Pennsylvania, it wasn't in England, right? Uh, there was back and forth between England and the United States with the Quaker, the religious movements and, and with France and so forth and so on. But no, there, there was, there were, it's always been a fight. I mean, it's always been a fight of those who had a noble conception of why we needed to have a sovereign nation out, outside the British Empire and uh, for the general welfare. And those who were in it to build their own power. But our successes were phenomenal and phenomenally helpful for the entire world in terms of what uh, was able to be done in economy uh, and increasing living standards, inventions, and everything of that sort. I, I'm totally convinced of that, despite the horrors, you know, that one goes through when you read the history of what's, uh, of what's happened. We don't read those about other countries, but we could, you know. Um, uh, we have to deal with our own country, but we do have a tradition here to uphold you know, to bring forward. And that's what I have hoped to do with, with the, the Hamilton book and with uh, hopefully the new one. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. Uh, that's, you know, very, uh, to me, it's uplifting. I mean, the whole subject is uplifting. Um, and so do you wanna tell us, I know your website is americansystemnow.com, but tell us what we'll find there and where people can find your book and right okay right. um well americansystemnow.com i started it in 2017 and you will find it's not a political website it's a history website it's a resource on the american system so i have articles on some of the people that we mentioned the lincoln administration fdr uh, i have some friends that have written extensive articles uh on these questions uh, occasionally you'll find commentary. Um, you have, you know, in the pandemic, I wrote about some stuff uh, on the slavery question. Uh, actually, my most popular post is, call, is called Knowledge Unfits a Man to Be a Slave, which is a quote from Frederick Douglass. And that has gotten more, I, I mean, I don't know exactly why, <laughs> uh, and I cover events, you know, that il are illuminate sometimes that are relevant to American history. So you can find a lot if you are interested in delving into what made our country and what problems we still have. I don't, it's not all positive, but, <laughs> uh, but a lot of it is. 
And the book is available through the website, but not, you can't really buy it through the website. You can link to buying it through the website. Um, it's available on Amazon, but if you don't want to give your money to Bezos, um, you can get you can get it either from my publisher, who gives me a slightly better cut, iUniverse.com, iUniverseBookstore.com. But if you put in my the book name, Hamilton versus Wall Street: The Core Principles of the American System of Economics, you'll get iUniverse. And you can buy it through them, and I get a little bit more of my payback. And I've actually encouraged people to get it from me. But since you're in California, it's a big mail. So because right before the pandemic shut everything down, I ordered a lot of books. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I haven't had any many events in the last year. So I do my own thing that way. But I would encourage you primarily to go through uh, americansystemnow.com. Okay, thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Been speaking with Nancy Spanis, author of Hamilton versus Wall Street, The Core Principles of the American System. Uh, her website is americansystemnow.com. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.